Well, good morning. Some, some people are still having conversations, so wait, that's okay. <laughs> I, I love, that, you know, this, that's one thing, that good thing that came out of COVID. I know, it's weird to say that, right? But churches suddenly valued fellowship. <laughs> when, it, when we were absent from it, we couldn't have that for so long. <clears throat> so it's a good thing. So <clears throat> I'm, I, I see some new faces. Uh, it's good to be back here. Uh, 80% of me is back here with you. Uh, for some of you who have seen me here before, you realize I've, I've lost a little bit of weight since last time, but <laughs> about 20% of my body weight. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's good being back. So for folks who don't know me, then maybe you're new to me at least. Uh, my name is Andrew Rappaport. I uh, travel around the world teaching the Bible. And my big, the most important thing, the thing I love to talk about is what we're going to talk about this today, which is how to interpret the Bible. <clears throat> I already went through with the men some things. <coughs> Excuse me. And so what we want to do is dig into Scripture, right? This is, this is the most important thing we could do. <clears throat> and so uh, I'm, I love coming back here. Uh, I'm trying to think how... Pastor Steve, how long is it? We, we, it, it? I mean, it started with Dan Bowen when we had the conferences. I'm thinking 2016, 2017. So, um, yeah, it's been, been a while that we've been, and I, I love this body of believers, love coming out here, so I appreciate you guys having me back. Um, but what we want to do today is dig into, uh, and this is going to be a condensed version of our Bible Interpretation Made Easy seminar. And I'm going to, in case you can't take notes quick enough, because I'm from Jersey, I can talk really fast if you need, no. <clears throat> but uh, if, you, if there's things that, well, I didn't catch everything. So for the men who were here for the breakfast, I could tell you this, everything that I went over we have um, on our YouTube channel, if you go on YouTube and search for Striving for Eternity, there's a playlist that is, I'd have to look it up now, I think it's called uh, Bible Interpretation Tips or something. Um, but it's one of the playlists. And every one of those five points I gave you, I have in, I think it's a, a five-minute video. So you can get through the whole thing in less than an hour if you want to go back and, and hear some of that again. <clears throat> but we also have a... 20 lessons on how to interpret the Bible, and you can actually watch them all for free. That's how we make our money. Wait. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, we, we have 20 lessons on how to interpret the Bible. And, if you, you, and there's a syllabus that we actually do charge for in the back if, you, if you're interested in it. But, so if you, if you miss some of this, it's okay. There's plenty of ways you can get it for free. Um, and I'll even tell you this up front is we have a flash drive that you can purchase that has the, all 20 lessons in video when the government takes away our YouTube channel and website and at least you have a flash drive so you have something to have some, we're trying to move everything that way now because I anticipate that. So let's, let's get started. The whole issue we have here is we want to, we're, I'm calling this Bible Interpretation Made Easy Keys for Correctly Interpreting God's Word. So let me start off with a warning. That's a good way to start it. Okay. So I, I just, I know that I've done this seminar enough. I know what ends up happening. So I'm going to start with a warning. I'm going to let you know that I, there's a high probability that this seminar is going to make you upset. 
I know that up front, so if you get upset with me, I'm okay with that. I already know I'm going to upset you. Now you know I'm going to upset you, so we're good with that. Uh, I'm going to teach you how to properly interpret God's word, not the way we all do it. Okay, so if you consistently and accurately interpret God's word all the time, you're going to agree with me. At least I think so. But (laughs) problem is I'm not always consistent. Uh, I could expose that the, many of the Bible passages that you love and use often, you're misusing. I'm going to get hit on some of your favorites, I know. Uh, I'm also going to teach you how to interpret the Bible by rules and not our experience. I talked with the men about this this morning, and I'm going to talk to the ladies about it on Tuesday, is that there's two ways we interpret the Bible, typically. We either follow the rules or itself. My experience, my systematic theology, what my pastor tells me, but those, it's either gonna, I'm either going to follow the rules or I'm going to have something else in, interpreting for me. All right? So what I want to do, and, and this is going to be interactive, so if any, throughout this, if you have questions, just raise your hand. Okay? And, and just so you know, I can answer, if, if it doesn't, you know, if you have questions afterwards, I can answer any question, any question you have about God in the Bible, I can answer it. And you, when you ask me your hardest question, I say, I don't know. Just remember, that's a perfectly good answer. <laughs> I do a show, I do a live show every Thursday night called Apologetics Live. And I start my show that way. Because I used to do that on the streets in New York. I'd get up on the street, I'd get up on a box, and I'd stand and tell everyone, I can answer any question you have about God in the Bible. Someone will ask me a really, really hard question. I go, I don't know. <laughs> they go, you said you can answer anything. I said, I just did. I don't know is an answer. I think it's a perfectly good answer if I don't know the answer. And then they start laughing, and it, it makes it a good cordial rela- you know, uh, conversation, and then I start sharing the gospel. But, uh, so w- if you have any questions, just raise your hand, okay? Because we're, we're gonna, we have two sessions that we're going to do. So what I'm going to try to do is, is cover some of the, the highlights. We want to dig deeper than we did for the men in, at breakfast. I'm gonna, we're going to dig deeper. But I want to cover some things. So first thing that we're, when we talk about studying the Bible... Uh, the first thing that I, we want to do is, well, if we're going to study the Bible, what would we need? Oh, right, a Bible. That would be good, right? Are all Bibles made the same, right? Yes, yeah, some are leather, some are hard. No, 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 that's, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about it, there's different types of translations, right? Okay, so who's got, what, what translations do people have here? ESV. ESV? Anything, anything other than ESV? NASB? Okay, just those two. Wow. All right. Um, I, usually ha- I usually read out of the Holman. That's one I like. I, I usually joke that, uh, you know, when I, when I preach, I preach out of the Reportian Bible. My last name is Rappaport. <laughs> but when we, look at, when we look at a Bible, not all Bibles are, are translated the same. And so the first thing I want us to do as we look at studying the Bible is we've got to know what type of Bible we have. How many of us here know Greek and Hebrew, other than Pastor Steve? <laughs> right? Many of us don't. So what are we relying on? We're relying on the translation. Okay. So are all translations the same? No. <clears throat> so let's look at some of them. The first thing that I want to do when we look at a translation, if you're going to want to do serious study of God's Word, which is... Basically, I'm going to argue one of the most important things you could do in life. 
you got to understand the first, the best ones to do study from is going to be what's called a literal or formal equivalent. What does that mean? This is a translation where it's a word-for-word -word translation. This will include your ESV, your NASB. NASB is going to be a, the, a, a very close word-for-word -word translation. Uh, some people are now switching from e, uh, NASB to the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. Um, and so that is where you take one word and translate it literally, and after you translate each word, then you try to fit it into a proper grammatic sentence. How many people here speak more than one language? Okay. So you know when you speak a different language, things don't always translate perfectly. Right? And so sometimes when you do the translation, then you have to shift words or you have to add something in for, to explain because there's just not a, a good word for something. And so what you do in a word-for-word -word translation is you're trying to get as close to the original Greek and Hebrew word-for-word -word that you can. That's going to be important because we're going to see uh, in this hour and next that sometimes a single word can make all the difference. Okay? So your, your literal or um, formal equivalents are going to be things like ESV, NASB, King James, New King James, Legacy Standard, uh, New English Translation, Holman Christian Standard, um, things like that. Then we go to what's called a free or dynamic. And what this is doing is this is where they're trying to translate sentence by sentence. This is going to be like your NIVs. And so what they're trying to do there is not translate the words, but the whole sentence. Well, what happens when you do that? You're getting a little bit more of the, interp or the translator's interpretation because their interpretation will influence how they, how they write the sentence. Right? So you're going to get a little bit more of their own personal beliefs in there. And then we have a paraphrase. And this is the, a thought by thought. This is going to be your message Bible, if you have the message. Um, now, the message was a translation. A lot of people like it because it seems so easy to understand. Um, but the message, it happens to be a translation by one individual. That becomes an issue right there. You have one man's interpretation. And he wrote it for his young children. So he's watering everything down. So is it easy to understand? Yes, because it was written for children. But when you do that, you have to understand you're getting one man's interpretation of the Bible in the translation, because a paraphrase is thought for thought. So you're getting not so much close to the, the original words, but you're getting the translator's thoughts of what the word means. Okay? So if you're going to study the Bible and you want to really study, stick to the uh, a formal equivalent. You want to get as close to those original words. Am I saying you should never read the message? Well, yes, but... Um, <laughs> Only because the guy who translated it also believes that homosexuality is fine. So I wouldn't use that one for that reason because I I'm start to question everything with him and how he's translating. But what about something like the Amplified Bible? That's a paraphrase. Might be fine to read, but read it the way we would read a commentary. With paraphrase Bibles, I, that's how I treat them. They're like commentaries. I have no problem reading a commentary and saying this is what someone says about the Word of God, but it's not the Word of God. That's what I would do with a paraphrase. 
is say this is someone's thoughts about the Word of God. So I treat it like a, a commentary. Does that make sense? All right. So the first thing that we're going to do, we wanna, I talked about rules of interpretation. So let's start with some of the, the models of interpretation. All right. What I want to start with is how not to interpret. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you these rules. How many people listen to Christian radio? Okay, so I'm going to ruin all of your days. I'm sorry. What I'm going to ask you to do is take notes here, and when you listen to Christian radio, I want you to look and I want you to identify how many of your favorite preachers on the radio break the rules. And then you're going to hate me. I'm sorry, but I already told you I'm going to upset you. (laughs) First way we should not interpret is by isolationism. So what is that? This is when we interpret a passage of scripture ignoring the context around it. How many of you like to be taken out of context? No one? Guess what? God doesn't like to be taken out of context either. All right? And so what this is is where we take a, a verse, and by the way, just so we know, chapter breaks and verses didn't exist in the original writings. They were actually written all together as a book and read that way or as a letter and read that way. And so that's the way we're supposed to read it. So when we look at this and we think about the, the, the Bible, we tend to, in our day and age, to read a verse. I, one of the things that frustrates me, I, I'm, I'm not a big guy on getting devotional books. I guess it's because I was just, how many, um, don't tell me if you read this daily, but how many people are familiar with our daily bread? The reason I don't like it is because you get one verse and then you read like a paragraph or two that has nothing to do with the verse usually. Okay? But it's just, it's inspirational. Just call it an inspirational thing, but it's really not a devotional because it's not helping you understand that verse. And I'd find a lot of times whatever they said has nothing to do with the verse. Okay, so it's, it's out of context. And we're going to l- see some examples of that. So isolationism is when we're going to take something and just open up and just go, okay, well, this is what this means to me. So I, I have a little n- news for you. I don't care what you think the Bible means to you. I don't care what I think the Bible means to me. We should all care what the Bible means. In fact, one of the little booklets I have in the back on this subject of hermeneutics is called, What Does That Mean to Me? With the two me crossed out. This is from one of our, our bloggers. Has, and it's a small little book. Like you can, this is not intimidating for anyone who's not a big reader. Um, but it teaches how to do hermeneutics. It doesn't matter what the Bible means to me. It matters what it means. And if we're going to take it out of its context, we lost the meaning. We'll look at some examples. Another thing is called proof texting. You're going to see this all the time. And what proof texting is, is where you take a verse over here and 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 you bring them all together. You string them all together to make something that the Bible doesn't actually say. Because typically what people do when they do this is they take this verse out of its context, this verse out of its context, this one out of its context, and so on. And it's usually what it is is they have one word that's in common. And they look through the Bible where, oh, look, we see this word here and this word here. And the same word is used here, 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 here. So it must have the same meaning. Now, if I said to you, you look blue, 
What do you think it means? Sad? Or it might mean you just look like you fell into a blue paint. Maybe you're painting your house. But two totally different meanings, right? You could, how, how are we going to know which one? Well, we're going to look at context. But you see, if I'm just taking the word and ignoring the context there and shoving it with another verse, ignoring the context there, I'm giving the Bible a different meaning than it has. I'm going to give you examples of that. The third thing that people do is spiritualizing. Okay? This is where they're reading a truth into the Bible okay, that's not actually there. And they give it some spiritual meaning. They're looking at it and, and they, maybe they look at something that happens historically in the Bible and they start to give it some spiritual meaning and say, oh, see, that's what this means. So let's look at some passages. Did, did I warn you guys that I'm going to ruin your favorite verses? Okay, all right. Anyone know what the most quoted verse is in the Bible? John 3.16. No, sorry, you're wrong. That used to be. Here it is. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That is so encouraging, isn't it? I'm not going to ask how many of you have it on your refrigerator or your pillows. I felt bad when I was doing this seminar once and a guy had it on his backpack. What, I mean, that is such an encouraging verse. So many people, that's their life verse. But context, why does nobody go just seven, eight verses down and make this their life verse? Jeremiah 29, 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending on them a sword, famine and pestilence and I will make them vile figs that they are so rotten they can't be eaten. I will pursue them with a sword, with famine, with pestilence, and make them a horror to the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Whose refrigerator is that on? I did this talk once and one of the guys ended up just putting this verse up. Just he wanted to do a social experiment. He put that verse up with a real pretty picture of a sunset and a bunch of people were liking it. And he's like, I don't think they're actually reading it. They're just hitting, it just, we're conditioned to hit like if we see scripture, right? This is only seven, eight verses away from everyone else's favorite verse. Whose verse is this? I mean, yes, God, that's what I want. I want a sword and I want famine. I want you to bring pestilence. I want to be a horror to all the nations. I mean, do we, is, is it speaking to that to me? Because everyone takes the other one personally for themselves. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if God told us who he was speaking to in Jeremiah 29, 11? How many people would like to, to know that if God gave us who he spoke to? Would you like to know? Okay, he did. In the very verse before that, Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. You see, he's talking to people who lived through the 70-year Babylonian captivity. Have any of you lived through that? No. No. I know I look like I'm old enough to have lived through it, but I haven't actually done so. The reality is, that's not talking to you and I. It's talking to a people that God promised he was going to bring them under judgment, and part of that judgment was for 70 years, they were going to be in captivity, 
But he promised that he'd bring them back. And that promise to fulfill life and give them a future was to them who were in a 70-year captivity when they might be questioning God to say, God promised he'd bring us back in 70 years. That's a promise. So you say, well, okay, Andrew. What's that verse then got to do with me? You're saying it has no application to me? Oh, no, I didn't say that at all. Because what do we see about that? What we could do is see that God was faithful to keep his promises to the nation of Israel when he put them in captivity. He did bring them back after 70 years, and he did keep the promises, and he did give them a future. And oh, by the way, just as he said in verses 17 and 18, when they disobeyed him, he also gave them a a sword and some famine and and a hissing of the nations. Okay? God is a promise-keeping God. Now, I can take that lesson and still apply it to me today. God was faithful to Israel. He's also faithful to us. That's how we can sit here and read it in its context and say, oh, this is not for me personally that I personally will have a future. You know, some people will take passages like Jeremiah 29 and 11 and they'll write books, Your Best Life Now. Now, let me just say, for the record, if this is your best life now, you have hell to look forward to. For the believer, this is your worst life now. I've often thought about writing a book called Your Worst Life Now, just to see. I don't think it would be a bestseller like the other one. But but the thing is, is that is this passage referring to me? No, it's referring to a nation. But it's also, and more importantly, the purpose of it is not that Israel will go, oh, we're going to have a future, we're going to have a future. No, the purpose of it is to say, God will keep his promises. That's something we need to know today. Brothers and sisters, I think in this country, we're going to need to know that. Because I think we're going into a time, and I know I've been saying this for three decades, but people are just now catching on to what I've been saying, that we're going to be going into a, a time of persecution where it's the church that is going to be put in, in prisons, prison camps. It won't be the Jewish people going through a holocaust. Is the church ready for that? Well, when that happens, are you going to just throw your faith out? Or are you going to say, you know what, Jeremiah 29, 11, God was faithful to Israel, he'll be, he'll be faithful to keep me may not be what I want. It may not be the life I desire, but he's going to be faithful. And he promises that if we are in Christ, we have eternal life and we will be with him. So whatever man's going to do to us, let them do to us. And let's look forward to seeing Christ all the more. Right? All right. Let me give you another example. Uh, This, this, if any of you are in the word of, have been in the word of faith movement as I was, uh, you, you, you may have heard this. This is Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, this passage was one where I remember the, the first time I heard it being used this way was in college. I had a friend of mine who his car broke down and he, he needed a vehicle. His parents wouldn't co-sign a loan for him. It's kind of bad if even your parents won't co-sign a loan. You, you, must, you must not be too good with money, right? Okay. Well, he asked me if I would co-sign a loan. My reaction was, dude, you do know I'm Jewish, right? Like, we're not known for just giving away money. <laughs> uh, we need collateral. We did like, no, Jewish people don't do that thing. You know? So the reality is that the next day he comes to me and goes, I'm getting a brand new car. 
Your parents changed their mind? He said, no. He quoted this verse. I got two other Christian brothers to pray with me, and we prayed that God would give me a brand new car, and so I'm going to get a brand new car because we're two or three agree on earth about ask anything in God's name, he's going to do it. God was committed to giving him a new car because he got three guys, him and two other people, to ask God for a new car. By the way, I don't think he's ever had a new car in his life, just saying. <laughs> you know, but tied to this, before we get to the context of this one, let's, let's go one more verse later because you see this passage, <coughs> this verse is used to say that if you get two or three people to ask for anything, it is guaranteed it's yours. Well, the very next verse is used differently. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This passage is used all the time to talk about Wednesday night Bible studies when there's only a few. I hear this all the time. Well, there's two or three of us are gathered. There's God in the midst. Hmm. Let me ask a question. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore into all the world... Go, go, sorry, go and make disciples, go into all the world, make disciples. And where, and he says in verse 20, and lo, I am with you. How many Christians are necessary for God to be present? Okay, actually it was a trick question. The answer is none. He's omnipresent. You see, you, this is not talking about, well, God's only present if two or three of us are there. No, God is everywhere. God's even in hell, by the way. That's actually the problem in hell. He's there. <laughs> He's present everywhere. You say, well then, what does this mean? How do you get two verses right next to each other and they have radically different meanings in most of Christianity? Well, if you actually start in verse 15, you realize this is dealing with the subject of church discipline. If you have another Christian that is in unrepentant sin... Now, I'm being really clear. It doesn't mean, if you read the context, it doesn't mean, oh, I don't like the way you said that. I mean, we live in the culture that, that is everyone's looking to be offended. <laughs> right? Uh, someone was in the men's, men's breakfast, I, I forget who said it, but one of the guys said a, a little meme that they saw where it was, say the magic word, and the magic word was, I'm offended. <laughs> I mean, that is our culture, Right? No, that's, it, it is not when the context of, of, of Matthew 18 is talking about pride and humility. And the, when he ends up talking about pride, what's the argument? The disciples arguing who's the greatest among them. And he's saying, you need to be forgiving. Well, how much should you be forgiving? Oh, 70 times 7. Yeah, that's in the same context. Right after this, he's going to say that. When he's saying that if your brother sins against you, you, how do you do it? You go to them after you go on social media. Is that what it says? No? Oh, you go to them after you talk to enough people to convince that they're, they're, you're, you got your echo chamber and everyone's in agreement. And then you bring everyone to them, right? No. When your brother is in unrepentant sin, so first off, it's a sin. And you go to the person and the whole focus of it is that they're unrepentant. And you go to them alone. But they don't listen. Why? Because they're unrepentant. So what do you do? You bring two or three witnesses. What's the purpose of the witnesses? The witnesses are there to first you convince the witnesses the person did wrong, right? No. In fact, in the back I have a chart. 
called our, our it's a, basically a chart on how to reconcile with people. Get the chart and study that before you have a conflict with someone just saying. It's much better to follow. But, but basically, there's, the, the thing is, most people, what they do is when someone's done something I think is a sin, they go and get two or three people and they share with those people, hey, this is what this guy did, let's go talk to him. No, they're supposed to be witnesses of what? The sin? No, the unrepentance. You bring them as witnesses to witness the person's unrepentance. So there's got to actually be a sin. And now two or three are in, in an unrepentance. Then you go before the church and you ask the whole church to go to that person. And they still are unrepentant. Then you put them out of the church. Well, why are these two passages here? I could tell you why. I have counseled dozens of men, dozens of pastors going through church discipline issues. Uh, it's one of the unfortunate things when you travel and, and speak at so many churches like I do, you, you end up being a pastor to pastors and you end up counseling all the pastors and you hear all the worst things that happen in churches, which is why I like this church because I very rarely hear anything negative that goes on in this church, which is great. But I do not know a single pastor that enjoys church discipline. In fact, I don't know a single pastor when they're going through church discipline that ever sleeps. A struggle. Are, are they making the right decision? Is there some other way to deal with it? Can they just avoid it? Because I'll be honest with you, most of us pastors, we avoid conflict just as much as you do. Right? No one, okay, there are some people that really thrive on conflict. Most don't. So why is this passage here? Very simply, it's here because it's to be an encouragement to the person who had to go and confront a brother or sister, had to bring the witnesses, and is now in turmoil, but when they're going to put this person out of the church, the whole purpose of it is to say, if you follow the biblical parameters, just know that God's with you. It's to encourage them that God is with you when you have to do something really difficult, like putting someone out of the church for their unrepentant sin. And disagreeing with the color of carpet in the church is not unrepentant sin, just for the record. Okay? I know some people think so. So those are some examples of isolationism. Let me give you an example of proof, proof texting. This actually happened to me during a debate with a Muslim. The, this is, uh, I was at Montclair State University. The Muslim was going to prove that Jesus Christ is not God. And he said what he's going to do is he's going to look at what the Bible says explicitly. Now, there's a difference between explicit and implicit. Explicit is something where it's, it's, you're seeing the meaning come right out, and implicit, you're interpreting the meaning. It's, it's implied. So as we look at that, this is what this gentleman did. He said, reading John 13, 16, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So he said explicitly, this passage is teaching, teaching that if you're a servant, you're not greater than your master. So he took that verse. And he actually was right in the interpretation of that passage. But then he slams it together with John 6, 57, where it says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. And he says, see, Jesus is saying he's not greater than the Father, so he can't be God. But was that what John's saying in John 6? No. Totally different meaning. You see, so what he did was he took one passage in its context, took another 
out of its context, slam them together, and the Muslims are like, oh, oh, that's so amazing. Yeah, it took me less than two minutes to totally dismantle his argument. (laughs) All I had to do was start earlier in John 6 and read the context. And that was done. He didn't like that. In, In fact, after that debate, he now has in his contract that he will not even be on stage with a Christian anymore. Yeah. He, he was, he, that's how you know that he knows he lost the debate. <laughs> um, and, and he had three times as much talk time as I did. They, they, the Muslims gave him, they gave me 20 minutes only because I, they gave me actually 10 minutes and then wanted me off, but I took another 10. And they gave him an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, but I, I only needed the extra... Ten, I, I gave a 10-minute opening and I just needed the other 10 minutes to dismantle. Um, but, but this is what you end up seeing people will do. The, they take a path, two, two passages and what's, what's he doing here? He's having the word servant and sent. He's saying, see, if you're sent, you're a servant. That proves he's not God. He ignored, well, John 8, John 10... Well, actually, in fact, he, he rejected, as I pointed out to him, 48% of the Gospels. Because 48% of the Gospels reveal that Jesus is God. Did you know that? If not, come talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll show you. Because he, he does it in, directly and indirectly all the time. If you want to study, just think about every time God, uh, Jesus read someone's mind. Can you do that? No, he put his deity on display. He controls the weather. He controls demons. He takes titles of deity. Those are all him putting the deity on display. And when you look, count up all the verses in the Gospels, as I have, 48% of the Gospels. Almost half. All right, so the last one I said is the wrong way to interpret is spiritualization. Let me read this. For, so uh, my wife uh, is from Hong Kong, so she speaks Cantonese. My sister-in-law uh, got saved after 9-11. And we went to church with them because they were going to get baptized. And uh, every once in a while, we'd go to church at, at their church. So they had a, a Chinese service. And then they would go to the uh, Chinese Sunday school. And I would usually sit on the English service. And so I would sit through the Chinese service where we would, they'd all be in Chinese. And um, back then, at least I understood more Chinese than I, I do today because I haven't been using it. But, uh, you know, I really didn't understand much, so what I would do during the Chinese service is this. I'd just open my Bible and do reading. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't understand what's being said anyway. So I'd just read the Bible. And then during the English, I would, I would read. Well, it was a res- one time it was Resurrection Sunday, and this was the passage the pastor was preaching. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the, t- to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's a good Resurrection Sunday text, don't you think? And he was talking about the spiritual meaning of this text, that there are dark times in our lives. I mean, there's times where your car breaks down and your money ran out and just you lost that job. That boyfriend just broke up with you. And there's just, there's, you just don't know what, what to do. But what God's trying to tell us is there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm so glad that God has been working on my sanctification because 
there were times during that I wanted to shout out in the middle of the message, but what ended up happening was, you know how sometimes you have the line of people that when they leave and the pastor's there to greet everybody, and two people in front of me was the C and E Christian. You know what that is? Christmas and Easter. You know how I know that? Because the pastor said, I haven't seen you since Christmas. <laughs> and this guy says, oh, pastor, that was so beautiful. I would never have seen that in the Bible. I was this close to going, Jesus wouldn't have seen it in the Bible because it wasn't there. <laughs> you know why it says it's dark? Because the sun didn't rise. <laughs> you know how I know that? Because it says it was early. What happens early in the morning? The sun is coming up before the sunrise. That's early. I mean, you just, just read it. It means that they couldn't wait to get there. It has nothing to do with my car breaking down. You see, but those sort of stories, oh, you know, David and Goliath, those five stones were, you know, your, your trials of life. No, they were five stones. <laughs> they had no other meaning. There was no spiritual meaning to five stones. I have heard more talks on what those five stones mean. It's crazy. It's, oh, well, this, one is for your, your, your emotional life, and one is your financial life. And, uh, yeah, he picked, you know why he probably picked five stones? In case the first four didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the guy's a big guy. He might take more than just what it took for the bear. Maybe he took five stones when he took the bear and the lion out. He figured, this guy's as big as a bear. I might as well take five. Maybe only three worked, but he wanted a little extra. But people give it some spiritual meaning. And man, we hear that, and people will string these passages together and go, oh, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> I, I have a friend of mine. He, he's, he's Presbyterian, so he believes in sprinkling. Hey, look, I mean, my theory is if, if you want to believe that for 70, 80 years, that's fine. I mean, I figure I might as well just believe in, in proper baptism now and, and enjoy it the rest of eternity. But if you want to be wrong for 70 years, hey, how about it? No. But he wanted to make a case that Jesus was sprinkled in the Jordan. And so it goes through this whole thing of saying, well, look, what was, he, what was happening there? John the Baptist, he was, he was you know, ordaining, John as a, as a priest was ordaining Jesus into the priesthood of Melchizedek. And when you, you do that, you would take oil and, and, you know, sprinkle it. And therefore, that's what was happening. And I'm going, okay, a couple questions. If that's the case, why did they have to go into the water for that? I mean, look, I, I have a cup of water right here. Just, psh, psh. I don't need to go into the Jordan to do that. Second, um, that's water, not oil. So if you're going to say that he's doing this to fulfill the, the ordinance of making him a priest, why is he using water and not oil? Oh, and by the way, do you know any passages that talk about how someone becomes a priesthood of Melchizedek? Yeah, no, because there's only one, Jesus. <laughs> and I don't think there's any way to get into it other than being, well, God. So... Yeah, I mean, it sounds so good. And what he does is he takes all these passages and goes all over the Old Testament and people are amazed and they're dazzled. And I just go, yeah, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> and we debate this, uh, which is always fun. But so, so this is the ways not to interpret. 
And you're going, well, Andrew, you spent a lot of time doing that. Good. Well, I want you to see how not to interpret because when you listen to the radio, you're going to see these things are used time and time and time again. So let's look how to interpret, okay? Most important thing to interpretation is, when we're going to look at this, the correct model of interpretation is going to be context. Now, I'm going to argue we want to do what's called a literal or normal interpretation. I, I, I prefer normal because when we say literal, people go, oh, so you take it literally, every word. Well, no, there are, there are things that we say that are phrases of speech. Anyone hear the phrase, I'm so hungry, I can eat a cow? Okay, if I say that, do you believe I can literally eat a cow? Then you haven't seen me eat as a teenager. I have eaten 60 ounces of steak at one time. My son just did tried this. My son just went to a place, he was in Texas, and they had ramen noodle, six, six and a half pounds. And you had to eat it in 45 minutes. And if you do it, your picture goes on the wall. The more important thing to my son was, he didn't want to pay the $45 if he didn't eat it all. He was going to make sure he did, he did it in 41 minutes. So the, the reality is, if I say that, you know that's a figure of speech. How are you normally going to interpret that as a figure of speech? You see, for the last 40 minutes, believe it or not, you have been practicing hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, the science of interpretation. And without even thinking about it, you are listening to what I'm saying and interpreting what I'm saying. You're understanding the meaning of everything that I'm saying because of the context. We practice hermeneutics all the time. But for some reason, when we get to the Bible, people go, oh, well, we got to interpret that differently. We got to find a spiritual meaning everywhere. Yeah, we got to find Jesus in everything. Oh, Song of Solomon, that must mean that Jesus and his bride. Oh, that's good. So it didn't have a meaning for a thousand years. No one knew the, the real meaning of Song of Solomon for a thousand years until Jesus came along. What? No, it, it, it's, it talks about a bride and her husband. It talks about a godly marriage that glorifies God. And, and that would be the thing. So we, we're going to look at it in its normal understanding. Okay? And the most important one is context. So let's look at some of the different types of context we have. We have the biblical context. I said already, we, don't have, we didn't have chapter breaks and verses in the original writing. So when you have something, just read the verses before it and the verses after it. I've already shown how that works for Jeremiah 11, 29-11. Understand where that is. What's the historical context? We're going to look at examples of this. We're removed at least 2,000 years from biblical history. What's the cultural context? Any of you grow up in a Roman culture? How about a Hebrew culture? Those two are not the same. Who here grew up as a nomad? <laughs> you grew, live in a tent, moving around in a desert? That's Abraham. You going to understand that culture? Well, we got to understand that culture to do the interpretation. What about grammatical? We understand what the, what it, the, culture, the, the, the context of the language itself, the, the word usage, the word order. That makes a difference sometimes. How about the spiritual context? Where is this in biblical history? You dealing with the nation of Israel? You dealing with the church? You dealing with pre-Israel? Pre Where are you? Let's look at some examples of this, okay? So as we look at the historical context, if we want to understand, say, the book of Jonah, we got to understand something about the hatred between Israel and the Ninevites. You see, people say that the reason Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh is because they were really wicked people. 
you know, they, they were so bad. What they would do to their enemies, they would take their enemies and basically put them into a plaster Paris with their mouth forced open. And at parties, they'd bore, pour boiling hot water down their throats for fun. That sounds pretty wicked, huh? That's evil. But that's not why Jonah was afraid to go there. In fact, it wasn't that he was afraid to go there. He actually says so in the context of Jonah chapter 4. For some reason, no one ever gets past the fish story. But at the end, he tells us the reason he didn't want to go. Because he hates the Ninevites so much, he knew that if God sent him to the Ninevites, God would bring mercy on them. And he hated them so much, he did not want them having mercy. What a prophet! I mean, this is a prophet of God. And God says, I'm going to call you to a people. And he's like, I'm not going there because I don't want you saving them. What? (laughs) Now, I will admit, I think I've seen people like Jonah when I go to the gay pride parades to evangelize. Because I've seen the guys. They, They hold up signs where they're clearly there to condemn the homosexuals, not to preach the gospel to the homosexuals. And, and those people are more like Jonah. They don't want those people to get saved. They want to condemn them. Or they think they're the Holy Spirit and they're going to be the ones to convict them. I, I'm not sure which, but guess what? They're not the Holy Spirit. No, you have to understand the hatred that the Israelites had for the Ninevites to understand why a prophet of God would so hate a group of people that when God says, I want you to go so that they'll repent, he says, no, because you're going to show them mercy. You have to understand that that's got a lot of hatred. And yet this is a, someone that God calls to be a prophet? <laughs> I mean, we're looking at this guy. I, I look at Jonah and go, mm, doesn't seem to be a very good character. Hey, and, and yet he's who God calls to bring repentance to Nineveh. Understanding something, uh, if we want to understand the book of Daniel, you, you have to understand the history of the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. That's a 70 years of history. And in that history, you have to understand something about that, that historical times of what happened to be able to understand what is happening in the book of Daniel. Because a lot of Daniel ends up giving prophecies that are still for future to us. But they're rooted in the history starting with what happened there. He talks about four empires. And we can, we can now, with the hindsight, look at all four of the empires. By the way, Daniel even mentioned the Greeks and the Romans by name before they were anything. When they were just small little countries, they would never have been seen as an empire. And he describes exactly how they would do their warfare, how they would spread. But you have to understand some of that to be able to interpret and and understand the book. So studying the Old Testament, uh, when we look at that, much of the Old Testament is historical books. I said this to the men, but one of the things you'll find with cults most cults find a lot of their, spend a lot of their time in Old Testament historical narratives. And they take that, which is descriptive, and they try to make it prescriptive. They take it, which is describing events that actually happened, and say, oh, this is the way we should do it. That's exactly why the Mormons believe that they should have multiple wives, or at least used to. When they wanted to be a state of Utah, they stopped teaching that. And now that this, the country has said that Somehow people of the same sex can get married. They're going back to that, by the way. So here's another thing to look at. <clears throat> you, ever, you ever take an atlas out and look at the geography? How many people here have actually been to Israel, actually? 
Okay. And, and I, we may, I know that we tried to do it, and then this thing called COVID occurred. But uh, we're, we're thinking of trying to do another one in 2025, so maybe Pastor Steve will talk and see if we can, can go. It, it will change the way you read your Bible. Here's why. Anyone remember the, what some of the, at least four of the disciples did for a living? J John, James, uh, Andrew, and Peter. What was their livelihood? Fishermen. Where? Sea of Galilee. Okay, so something interesting of the Sea of Galilee, and you can see us when you're at the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee. You notice that as you look, there is a mountain range all the way around the sea. You see that? What's the significance? Ah, I'm glad you asked. That was a very good question. Thank you for asking, Michael. So the reason that becomes significant to me is that tells me that these, at least these four guys that are that are used to fishing there on that sea, when you're in the, in the sea, you're not going to see a storm that comes over a mountain range until when? It's, it's right atop of you. They didn't have motorboats. So if you're out at sea and there's a storm, you've got one of two choices. You're either going to row against the wind or you're going to let the wind take you wherever you're going to get to shore. Right? But you're going to be in the storm. What happens if you're in the storm time and time and time again? You get desensitized. Well, you get wet, yeah. You get desensitized to it, right? So I, I grew up on a, on a, a ship. Uh, my father was a professional captain of his own boat. Uh, but I've been at sea a lot. I've been in storms. And I very rarely get scared in storms. There's only one time I got scared. My father had to go down to the engine room. He tells me, drive straight into every wave. Now, I'm on the bridge. I'm about 30 feet above sea level. And I am looking as we hit the bottom of the of the. the uh, wave. I'm looking at the top of the wave, and it's above me. It, my dad, you know, this is the encouragement. He says, if you turn just a little, we're capsizing, so go straight. <laughs> yes, Captain. <laughs> he had to get down. He, you know, we had no choice. We, he had to get some, fix something in the engine room. We're, we're about 25 miles off, off the coast. You know, no one's finding us for a while. So that was the only time I was scared, because that was a different storm than any other storm I had been in. Well, I was desensitized to all the others. That one scared me. So why do I bring all this up? Ah, for this reason. If you have some guys that are desensitized to being in storms because they're out in them often, I would think they're out in them often because they're not seeing the storm until it comes over the mountain range. And all of a sudden, they're in a storm. And as Mark describes it, it's a mega hurricane, a super hurricane. Those disciples who are used to being in storms are scared. So scared they think they're going to lose their lives. This is not an ordinary storm. Even the Greek says it. A mega hurricane. See, just by looking at the range of mountains, it tells me something that I can see about the, the, the area to teach me that this was not normal. So what happens? Jesus says to the water, be still. I love the way it is in the Greek. It, it calls that, right after he says that, a mega calm. Stops immediately. No, no waves. Just goes from this mega storm that scares experienced fishermen to just being calm. Not even a ripple. You wonder why they got scared in that? You know what's scarier than being in the middle of a storm? Realizing God's in your boat. <laughs> right? All right. So some cultural context. Um, 
Matthew 24, 30, 36. But concerning the day or hour, uh, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I, I, th- this is one I have seen so many people. The first time I heard this preached, my pastor spent 20 minutes trying to explain how Jesus in his humanity could not know something that he knows is in his divinity. That's actually a heresy, an early century heresy dividing the nature of Christ. Okay? People do that all the time without realizing it. I remember the first time I walked up to my pastor hearing this, hearing him, and I said, Pastor, why didn't you just explain that it's a Jewish idiom? And he went, because I didn't know. It is? Yeah, see, this is an idiom that's used in marriage to say that you should be living your life expectantly. See, in a, in a Jewish marriage, the son never knew when he was going to get married. Only his father knew. He never knew the day or the hour. The father would say, go get your bride, and he'd get his men, and they'd march through the streets so that the bride knows, get ready, because I'm coming to get you. And the, the men would run ahead so that the bridesmaids would get the, the bride ready to come and get picked up for the wedding. But the son would work on the house, and sometime after the house is ready, the father would say, okay, go, go get your bride. So the saying is to say that the son doesn't know the day or the hour, only the father knows. Now it is interesting because in here, it's not even the angels. Now in the modern day usage of this, that's not there. It, the modern use would be concerning the day or hour, no, uh, this, no one knows, not the son, but only the father. The angels aren't there. Could that have been lost over time? Maybe. Could it be lost because modern Judaism doesn't believe in angels. So that could be. So, so, but the thing is, is that this is an idiom saying to live as if any moment is the time. Now, I'll encourage you, go read Matthew 24 now with that understanding. And guess what you're going to see? That's exactly what the text says. Live, live as if this is it. And it even references things of inheritance and, and marriage. So what we end up seeing there <clears throat> is that within that, that cultural context, we understand that as an idiom. All right, <clears throat> here's, here's one that's not a cultural context. I'd just like to, to throw this in so people understand how many people will misinterpret. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Um, when you look at verse 12, which I didn't quote, it talks about women not being pastors or teachers. And so many people want to say, well, see, culturally, that was a cultural issue. Well, looking, let's look at this culturally. Let's see if it is. Uh, for Adam was formed first. How, how long before Adam was, how, how many years roughly was Adam before Paul? How many, anyone know? Roughly? 4,000 4, years. Does that sound like a cultural issue to Paul? No, it sounds like it's 4,000 years ago. Actually, it sounds like this is dealing with creation, doesn't it? Yeah, Exactly. In fact, we know that because the very next verse says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. What's that dealing with? Creation. So you have the creation order and the sin order. This can't be a cultural issue. Why? Because the context is rooting it in creation and the original sin. You see, so people will try to say sometimes, oh, this is, that's just cultural because the Bible says something they don't like. I got news for all of us. The Bible is going to say things we don't like. We don't get to be the judge of the Bible. The Bible is the judge of us. You know why we like judging the Bible? Because we don't like it judging us. <laughs> All right. Let me give you uh, one uh, in grammatical context. I'm gonna, I, I want to give at least two of these, actually, but we'll see. <clears throat> the first one is this. 
1 John 5.13, when we look at the, the actual words, I said that a word can make a difference. John writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I put those three words in red, believe, know, have. What tense are they? Past, present, future. You believe now, but you know and have are something, they are present, but they're from a past. Right? It's a past event that you, you know something, you, you already have eternal life. So is eternal life going to be heaven? Not according to that passage, because you already have it. Right? So this gets back to something that I, I said to the men. Can we lose our salvation? Not according to that passage, because I already have eternal life. Can't lose something that, are, that, that is given to me forever. Right? So, so I look at this, and, and because of the tense, it can tell me, son. Now I'm going to show you a passage that our English does this, uh, us an injustice. Okay? I'm not going to read the whole verse, but this is John 21, 15 to 17. So this is right after Jesus uh, is, is he's on trial. Peter has denied him three times. Right? Then you have the time where Jesus raises from the dead. He, the, fish, the guys are out fishing. Jesus comes to him, and we have three times that Jesus is going to ask Peter, do you love me? Now, I'm not going to ask, but I'm sure if you've ever heard this preached, you've probably heard it preached that the reason that Peter was asked three times was because he denied him three times. Well, I don't think so. I color-coded this, okay, because what I did was I want to read to you that there's two different words for love here in the Greek. Agape, which is a self-sacrificing love, I have that in red. Phileo, which is a brotherly love, I have in blue. Because when you, when you read it that way, you have a different meaning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you the verses, but I'm going to do this. For the word agape, I'm going to say love. And for the word phileo, I'm going to say like. So, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I like you. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of, God, uh, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I like you. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you like me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, do you like me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I like you. See, it wasn't three times. This is, remember I said about the spiritualizing? That's what people do when they say, oh, three denials, three, three times to affirm. No. The reason he's grieved, he says so. Because Jesus questioned if he even phileo him. You see, Jesus says, do you agape? You know I phileo. Agape? Phileo. Do you even phileo me? He was grieved because he's trying, to, he's trying to sound spiritual and say, well, I, I, I follow you. I, I like you a lot. But Jesus even questioned that with him. You see, that is why. And we don't get that from the English because the English just says love all three, all, all, each time. But when you look at the different words in Greek, suddenly a single word can change the way most people interpret this passage. Most people spiritualize it because they see the three and the three. 
And the, the focus is not on the, the number of times Jesus asked, but the word that he used. All right, let me give you one more and then we'll break. And this is too much. I'm not going to read this whole one. But this is Revelation, 13, uh, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. You've probably heard this one used. We talk about a spiritual context. This is actually also spiritual and geographical context. This is, uses both. So many people use this where, where it says, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Were you, uh, would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So many people preach, God wishes you are hot or you are cold. Um, maybe you guys can help me out. I may not be the smartest guy in the room. Does God ever want us to be dead and cold toward him? I mean, is that something we see in the Bible? I really wish you were just dead. I wish you were just, no, didn't care. Where is that in the Bible? Oh, right there. Really? So that would be the only passage we see where God wishes you were just cold toward him. People give this a spiritual meaning that, oh, see, God, God just wants, he doesn't want you to be, he either wants you on fire or he'd rather you just be ignoring them altogether. That's better than just being lukewarm, kind of going to church and not doing anything. He'd rather you not go to church. Really? That's strange. Now, why do I say geographically? Because here's what we know about that area. In that area, they had two different types of water. They had these hot springs. Anyone go into a hot tub? It's very, it's very soothing, isn't it? Especially after a run. I'm a long-distance runner. I was in, I was in uh, uh, Orlando right after they had the Disney half marathon. Everybody that was in the hot tub that night had just done the half marathon. They were like, I could tell exactly who did the, mar who did the half marathon. They're like, <sighs> actually, no, I could tell the guys who did it for the first time, realistically. It was kind of funny because this one guy is trying to tell me like, oh, you don't know what it's like. <laughs> that is so far. I'm like, uh, I run a half marathon every day. He's like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, you know, that's soothing, isn't it? Well, the hot springs, they are, they're medically, they're very good for us. They're soothing. They help relax our muscles. They also, in this area, had these cold springs. Any of you get a nice cold drink of water on a hot day? Isn't that so refreshing? Both of those have value, don't they? But you know what the one thing we used to, I used to run through a park and they, 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 sometimes they'd have the water faucet be open. We never knew what was coming out. Sometimes, oh, it was refreshing cold water and we would drink it and pour it all over ourselves after a 10 mile run. But sometimes it had been in the sun too long and we got nice lukewarm water. And what did we do with it? Spit it out. It wasn't refreshing, and it wasn't healing. See, the, the problem is that those two waters came together at some point. It wasn't hot and helped to, re to relax muscles, and it wasn't cold and refreshing. It was useless. What is it that Jesus was trying to tell them? I would rather you be like the hot water or the cold water, two things they would have known in their area. He's using that for a different spiritual context to say, you understand that the, this water... You understand it has value. It's useful. But when it comes together, it's useless. What he's saying is, I'd rather you be useful rather than being useless. 
which is really kind of interesting because the very way most people preach this is God would want you to be cold. What's cold? Useless. They're actually preaching exactly opposite of what the text actually is saying. Okay? So, that is the number one most important thing. That's why I spend the most time on this because if you understand this one thing, you're going to be able to rightly interpret most of the Word of God. There's a lot of things that take a lot more time, granted. But this is going to be the thing that if you get one thing out of this seminar, get that. To read in context. As Greg Kokel says, never read a Bible verse. Read the chapter. Read the book. But never read a verse. All right? Now, what we're going to do after, after this, this, was, this really wasn't on how to interpret. We're going to get into the, all the rules in a moment. But I wanted you to see how not to interpret and how to interpret. Right? Just with one thing of context. And then after lunch, we're going to come back and we're going we're gonna to dig into how do we really understand the rules to interpretation. Sound good? All right. Let's, you, Pastor, you want me to pray for the meal as well too? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. Uh, for the fact that you give us your word. It is, you uh, know, the world we live in now where everyone tries to say there is, no, there is no truth and everyone has their own truth. Lord, we have something that is true. We have something we can rest upon and know that it is absolute truth because it comes from you, the creator of the universe who cannot lie, who is faithful, who is good. You would not deceive us. So we ask, Lord, that you, by the person of the Holy Spirit, would illuminate your word to our understanding and the application thereof so that we could live a life pleasing you, so that you would be glorified. We ask this in Christ's name. Oh, we also, sorry, we ask, Lord, for the food we're about to partake. We ask that you use it to give our bodies energy and nutrition so we could better serve you. We ask for the fellowship that we have around the table, that it would be something that uh, would just equip one another and edify one another and lift you up on high. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.